When I choose a week to preach, I'm usually working around our family's home schedule and my work schedule. I don't usually look at the scripture until after I've already signed up. And this week, I wondered whether it would be okay just to take my name off the list and slip quietly out of the preaching lineup because the transfiguration. I do not understand this story. I think it's a weird kind of supernatural, and I don't really get why it's got its own Sunday to celebrate. Plus, I actually think I preached on it before, which is always really irritating to try and find something new. I thought maybe I could just pick up scripture and go with it, or bring a puppet like other weirdos have done. But then Peter, who usually has the calm head in the family, just encouraged me to sit with the scripture a little bit. Listen to Pulpit Fiction, which is actually an awesome weekly podcast about the lectionary tests and a great place for sermon jump-off spots. He said, drink some coffee, calm down. I don't really know why I'm so uncomfortable with this story. I appreciate other miracles that Jesus does. One of my favorites is his healing of the woman who was bleeding because I love the connection with an unclean, the unclean woman, the breaking of social taboos, and once again, his care for the underdogs. But the transfiguration just seems so big and shiny and magical, and that's an area that I'm not super sure about. If I had been a shepherd in the field on the night that Jesus was born, I would definitely have hid under a blanket when the heavenly host started blaring from the sky. I would be the one who would need them to say, be not afraid, because I would be very, very afraid. I would be Thomas, needing to touch the risen Christ before I'd believe it. So this shiny-faced Jesus just doesn't really do a whole lot for me. But I was listening to my husband, who had just given me a hot cup of coffee, and I drank it, and I calmed down, and I thought for a while. And I realized it might help me to think through the people on the mountain and why they were there in the first place. First, obviously, we have Jesus, the most important person there. According to many of the authors I read in preparation, this moment is a really big moment in Jesus' life. It's a bridge between his public ministry and his passion. Epiphany, which is the season we've just been through, is Christ making himself known to us. Ministry and traveling and healing and preaching. Christ showing us who he is and why he's the son of God. Lent, which we're about to embark on, is Christ preparing his disciples and us for what comes next. The transfiguration is the bridge between the two. And in Luke, it's also sandwiched between two miracle stories. Directly before our passage for today is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle of Jesus that is in all four Gospels, and it's a huge display of Jesus' power and caring. And the transfiguration is immediately followed by Jesus, who had just been all shiny and talking with icons of the past, trundling down from the mountain and immediately plunging back into the human mess, healing a boy from a demon. Fully human, fully divine. The big paradox of who Jesus was is so evident here in this story. Moses and Elijah were also there on the mountain. I always thought of them as a connection to the past, the revered ancestors and leaders that Jesus learned from who were respected and loved by their communities. Yes, and one commentator I read likened them to Martin Luther King Jr., We all get misty-eyed talking about MLK Jr. and his captivating preaching and March for Justice. But when he was assassinated, his approval rating among white Americans was at about 27%. 
It's really only in his death and with time that we have learned that his words were truly prophetic. A prophet in his or her own time is often rejected. And that's how it was with Moses and Elijah too. Moses was repeatedly rejected by the Israelites and he was stuck with them in the desert as they wandered and complained. Elijah fleed for his life repeatedly as he challenges the sinful leaders of the time. And we know that Jesus too isn't gonna have an easy go of things. He's headed down from this mountain into Passion Week. In fact, in verse 51, just a few verses later, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely. Resolutely he set out for Jerusalem, not with a spring in his step, but with the knowledge that there were unimaginably horrible times ahead. So maybe his meeting with Moses and Elijah was to encourage Jesus. They had experienced rejection from the ones who had revered them the most. Maybe they were there to give him strength for the journey ahead. Glory will sometimes call us where we don't want to go, even unto the valley of the shadow of death. And there was another group there on the mountain, the disciples. Included was one of my favorites, Peter. I love Peter because I relate to him so much. So here's the recap for who Peter was. He was a fisherman, a laborer who spent his early mornings out on a boat hauling nets. He fished with his brother Andrew, and one day after a long and frustrating night without a catch, they lent this wandering preacher, Jesus, their boat so that he could preach to the multitudes on the shore. Jesus then turned to them and asked them to let down their nets again, and despite what must have been overwhelming skepticism, Peter did it. A huge haul. And immediately, Peter believes, leaves his nets, and follows Jesus. A concrete believer. Someone who needs to be shown, but then is all in. I can get behind that. Plus, Peter is always sticking his foot in his mouth, which I also love and can relate to. Peter doesn't have all the answers. He isn't the most well-read. He isn't the most well-spoken. I imagine him as a rough-handed, foul-mouthed, uneducated person, but one who saw and recognized Jesus for who Jesus was and dropped everything to follow him and to learn more. But all the way through the Gospels, Peter was learning, which means that he makes many, many mistakes. Peter's mistakes are part of what make me love him so much. Just before our story begins, Peter gets a win. Just after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus poses a question to his disciples. Who do the crowd say I am? And the disciples reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago that has come back to life. Jesus persists, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, God's Messiah. Boom, nailed it. Well done, Peter. I bet he was riding high. You know that feeling when you've absolutely rocked a big test or a tough question or a tricky situation? You feel invincible, as though you finally figured out this whole life thing. And then, well, then you get a shiny-faced Jesus on a mountaintop in a really strange situation. And Peter is so overwhelmed at seeing the glory of Jesus in a supernatural moment that he says absolutely the wrong thing. Wow! This is awesome! Let's build some little houses up here. Let's do one for Jesus and one for Elijah and one for Moses and just live here in happiness and glory and shininess forever. 
And boom, the miracle's over, the shininess is gone, and Peter bombs big time. Awkward. So this is what I love about Peter. He's just a regular guy doing his best to figure out what in the world is going on with this person who says he's fully human, but is also fully God, which means that sometimes some really weird stuff happens that doesn't happen to other fully human people. I imagine Peter spends half his time in wide-eyed disbelief at the miracles happening around him, and yet he continues to try. He continues to follow Jesus, continues believing, continues learning. He's going to screw up again big time. We've all heard the story of him denying Jesus later in Luke. But after he realizes that he has denied Jesus, that Jesus had predicted exactly that he would do this, Peter goes outside and weeps bitterly. He loves Jesus. He's doing his best. And he screws up sometimes, just as I would do, just, I think, as any of us would do. Peter also makes me think about my grandpa, my dad's dad. My grandpa was a man who always seemed a step out of sync with everybody else. He was a rural kid from Ohio, raised in a strict Mennonite home. After high school, he was drafted and served as a conscientious objector in World War II as a smoke jumper and as a worker in a mental hospital. After the war, he spent time in France and Germany helping to rebuild and to give relief to refugees. But when he returned home, he didn't have a real place anymore. His peers had gotten married, the chance for college was behind him, and so he did what was expected of him and started farming. For much of my dad's childhood, Grandpa had two jobs, farming and welding. The welding he did late at night, returning home for the morning milking and a few hours of sleep. Grandpa had a lot of tragedy in his life. We think he had some childhood trauma, but that was never discussed in our family. He had the loss of a firstborn son to prematurity, and a farm accident took his right hand when my dad was in high school. And Grandpa was just awkward. He showed us love, but in unusual and inelegant ways. About a week after I had Daniel, my first child, my husband Peter quietly crept out the door to go to work when he heard from the street, don't you get in that car. It was my grandpa who had showed up unannounced in the middle of the night and slept in his car until morning. Peter spent some time driving grandpa around town until mid-morning because he knew I needed some sleep and then they returned to the house. Grandpa held his first grandchild, ate lunch with us, refused to stay longer, and hopped back in his car to drive home. That was Grandpa, awkwardly loving, often not quite getting it right, but continuing to try. And that's, to me, what the disciple Peter feels like. So what do I think Peter took away from this mountaintop? What did he think about as he trudged back down into the valley of humanity? Thinking about what Peter might have learned helped me focus on what I might have learned. First, I wonder if the eagerness that Peter showed in the moment, that exuberant joy, stayed with him. Did he look back at that moment on the mountain when he saw Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah? Did it bring him comfort and strength for the journey that was ahead of him? Did he remember that moment? And remember the lives of Moses and Elijah, that they were called to do the hard work, to walk into the valley of the shadow of death in order to move God's important message out into the world. 
Second, I think Peter may have realized that following Jesus is a journey of highs and lows. Jesus was born in a barn surrounded by animals, but he was celebrated by angels in the sky and kings traveling from far away. His ministry was full of miracles of healing, but they often affected the lowest members of society. He met with tax collectors and slept outside, but he also saw glory on a mountaintop. In Jesus, we find the connect between glory and death, and so our discipleship to him and our commitment to live with Jesus as our compass means that our journey isn't going to be perfect either. We're going to screw up, just like Peter. And just like Peter, we're going to have our aha moments when it seems like we've got everything figured out. And just like Peter, we'll probably screw up again. Discipleship for us and for Peter is success followed by failure over and over and over and over again. And finally, I wonder if this moment helped Peter to remember why he followed Jesus. This miracle worker, the son of God, who converses on a mountain with long dead leaders, whose face shines like the morning sun, this Jesus comes down from the mountain and plunges right back into the mess of human life. He doesn't stay on a hut in the mountain, basking in sunlight. He dives straight back into the valleys of our needing humanity. He continues to lead us into who we can become as we try to be faithful. He continues to remind us that the search for happiness is futile and fleeting, but the journey towards service and kindness and God's love is lifelong and fulfilling. I think Peter got it, at least for that moment. I think I got it for at least a moment. And working through this story has helped me understand yet again why I follow this Jesus guy. Why it's important to continuously reject the demons of institutional racism, sexism, homophobia. Why we go into the uncomfortable conversations with open ears and open hearts. Because the pursuit of happiness is not what Jesus is about. Instead, we're called to pursue justice, kindness, and mercy. We're called to show God's love so fully that they'll know we're Christians by our love. And we'll screw up, royally, over and over and over again. And Jesus will plunge back into our mess and walk beside us over and over and over again. The wonder of the mountaintop isn't necessarily the glory. It's the reminder that God is with us. God walks with us. God loves us. Amen. Amen.